Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Bill Taub and Dave Tilly. Welcome to uh, Homeland Heroes Salutes. This is uh, Dave Tilly, and I'm here with my friend Phil Taub, and we've got a, a great guest with us today, uh, James Klein, who is a uh, former Marine and, and today is uh, also serving over at uh, Harbor Care, serving our veterans and just wanted to welcome you, James. Yeah, I appreciate it, Dave. Uh, it's been great working with you. Uh, love working at Harbor Care. I've done multiple jobs since I've been there. I first came there starting uh, back in 2017, working for SAMHSA for a grant that has to do with homeless vets. I've uh, changed a few jobs, but now I'm back to working with homeless vets again. So I really enjoy it. Well, that that's that's tremendous. It's tremendous work and and service. And uh, if you could share share with us a little bit about your service, what what got you uh, interested in in serving in the uh, U.S. Marine Corps? Um, you know, as a young person, uh, tell us a little yep. bit about your your decision to serve. Yeah, so mine, uh, I don't want to say it was out of necessity. It was more out of I needed something to do. Uh, so I was actually the kid in high school that said I would never join the military. And uh, I was really focused on science. I even won the state science fair my senior year for physics. Uh, got accepted to a bunch of schools, but uh, there were no guaranteed student loans or I wasn't educated in it. I couldn't get a scholarship, even though I finished the top of my class. Um, so I ended up taking a year off and decided uh, I need to do something. So I actually went through the process for the Air Force Academy, got, got that all squared away. But my brother, Ernie, who was about to graduate high school, actually had a Marine recruiter come to the house. And I was listening to their conversation. And I'm like, wait a minute. I think the Marines are more like me, not the Air Force. Uh, <laughs> needless to say, the Air Force wasn't too happy. It's a lot of work to try to get in one of the academies. And it was too late to switch over. so. Uh, I signed the papers for the Marine Corps instead. Three weeks later, I was standing on the yellow footprints down at Paris Island. Um, and pretty much within a couple of days of being there, I went in under infantry as an 0311, uh, uh, security forces. What ended up happening was you do a bunch of tests in the first few days when you're forming up your company. And uh, I ended up getting pre-selected for uh, Yankee white duty, which also known as presidential guard duty. Uh, so I had a, I got permission to uh, call home and get information so they could start the background check. So normally when you're at Paris Island, you don't get any contact with anybody until like the day before you graduate. So almost 13 weeks into it. Uh, so I, I got exceptions. So they get the stuff going. I went through the process and they told me out of about 1800 Marines they had screened. Uh, I was the only one that made it through the entire process to actually make it to Washington, D.C., uh, you wait there while your security clearance comes in, which is equivalent to what the Secret Service have, a Cat 1 clearance. And you can go to one of three places. You can either go to WACA, White House Communications Agency, you can go to the White House, or you can go to where I went, which was Camp David. Uh, awesome experience, almost three years between D.C., uh, here and there at the White House. I filled in at the WACA a few times, uh, but most of my time was at Camp David, so I got to meet a lot of people. A lot of celebrities, uh, a lot of dignitaries, uh, great experience. And I kind of 
molded me who I was. So uh, I'm able to talk to pretty much anybody because I'll tell you what, President Clinton, Hillary, uh, all the U.S. senators and U.S. reps in D.C., they all treated us just like we were just normal people. They didn't care about our backgrounds or anything like that. Um, so it really opened my eyes in, in, into the politics. But not getting into it, there's also things that happen behind closed doors that uh, probably shouldn't be happening either. But that's a whole other conversation. What what an incredible experience! Now, how old were you then? I mean, straight out of uh, you know coming coming straight out of. Um, well, I graduated high school early. I was only I had just turned seventeen. Yeah. Um, so by the age of nineteen, there I was standing next to the president with a loaded weapon. So. From coming from a small town in Maine, only two thousand people, Limerick, Maine. Uh, so a huge culture shock. Not just going down to Paris Island and Chesapeake Bay for training and stuff, but just being in a huge city like DC uh, just opened up your eyes with all the colleges and all the people coming through and tourists. And uh, but it was an absolutely great experience that I wouldn't change anything. And right there is the you know the, the history behind the Marine Corps Eighth and I there in DC. Been around since 1801. I always volunteered to stay in the main gate. Um, all kinds of people would come through. All kinds of stories from people, all different countries, telling why they came to the United States and what they want to see and how thankful they were about the Marines. Plus, it opened up my eyes immediately to the Marine Corps because the Commandant of the Marine Corps is there. The other generals are there. We used to work down on Washington Navy Yard, so you got to see the CNO of the Navy, other admirals. I actually went over uh, an admiral's house. He was in charge of naval war, uh, naval air warfare for the entire Navy. Uh, he was stationed there. And I just happened to have a conversation one time after I saluted him when he came through the gate that I kind of liked his car because at the time I liked Jaguars and that's what he drove and kind of started the conversation. So got to go over his house a couple of times for dinner and stuff. So I got to see things on a much higher level uh, and it kind of changed my view of things being so young and how the world actually works at that type of level. Um, and again, it helped mold me to who I am right now and how I perceive things. Uh, so you could say sometimes I see things a little bit jaded maybe in a different way. It's just people don't understand my background and how quickly I was thrown into the fire um, and was able to see things happen firsthand that most people, not just in this country, in the world, would never get to see. Wow, James, we, we can't let that go without asking you to tell us a couple stories. I mean, what just a couple <laughs> moments uh, that, that you still remember that are quite memorable to you? Uh, I'll tell you what, one time, because I, I actually got there just before Clinton got elected, so I actually got to work the inauguration. So when I was working the inauguration, they lined up all us military folks by branch, like it would be a Marine, Army, Navy. Coast Guard, Air Force, and it just went down the street like that. So I actually got to stand next to a, a young lady that was in the Navy, and she actually, I had to almost catch her because she was about to faint because she just saw like this person, this gentleman that was on a soap opera, but she got to see him in person, and she was just so excited about it, she almost passed out. So uh, meeting the celebrities. One thing that stood out to me with, with, uh, the Clintons are when I was at Camp David, it's in, it's in the Contocton mountains. So if you actually go to the Contocton mountains in Maryland, it's in the panhandle, it's called a, a small town called Thurmont, Maryland. 
if you go there, a lot of people try to get pictures of the Camp David sign, but you can't until you actually go up the road. So what happens is the main road there that goes by, it's just a small mountain road. It's actually just says camp number three on it. But then there's like 25 signs that say, do not enter government property. You will be prosecuted. So one that stands out to me is Andy Rooney actually tried to get on base. <laughs> so he ignored the signs, came up. But what he doesn't know, as soon as we have an unauthorized vehicle come through, there's a gate that well, we can open, we can close. So he can't leave because you actually don't see the Camp David sign until you go up the road and around the corner. Well, we made sure that he got some special treatment and um, his entire vehicle was stripped out. He was searched, his cameramen were searched. And then we called the US Park Police to come up and find him. I think it was like 25 or $35 at the time for trespassing. And then he was escorted off. But he was very insistent that he was a taxpayer and he should be allowed to see what happens on that facility, so. Right. Wow. Andy Rooney, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Not to age myself, but, you know, it's a few years ago. Yeah, no, for sure. And that must have been great working with the Clintons. You know, I've, uh, you know, I've had the, the pleasure of meeting both uh, President Clinton and Hillary Clinton on a number of occasions as it comes through New Hampshire. And whether you agree with their politics or not, uh, you know, they really are a very engaging, charismatic couple right? Easy to spend time with. And you could probably say that about every president that we can remember and first lady. Um, so that must have been just a all around terrific experience. Oh, absolutely. They treated us just like normal people. He even told us one time we were playing uh, pool at the petty officers mess up there. And um, a couple of Marines were kind of letting him win. He's like, no, I'm a regular guy. Let's play. I want to know that I'm actually losing or if I'm actually winning or not. So he wanted to be treated just like everybody else was. Another thing that stood out to me was I was standing at the main gate one time and I could kind of see where the president's cabin was that uh, Hillary, um, Chelsea and Bill, they just stopped in the middle of the road and just kind of hugged each other. Now I'm thinking, well, there's no cameras here. There's nobody else but me at the post. Why are they doing this? Uh, so I just figured it was just uh, genuine affection at the time so because it's in the middle of the middle of the woods on top of a mountain so i mean it's not like anybody's watching <clears throat> very nice great experience wow. really cool and so where 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 did you go from there after that rotation <clears throat> so uh i had a, not the best experience down at camp lejeune so when you get down to camp lejeune uh being a marine from dc uh when you get done with presidential duty, you get a presidential service badge. It's serialized. It stands out. You can wear it on any uniform. I showed up with a unit down there, and uh, I kind of stood out like a sore thumb. I was the only one in my infantry company that had a good conduct medal. Obviously, I had the presidential service badge. I just picked up corporal. Um, there were a lot of things that made me stood out compared to the rest of uh, uh, the mainstream Marines that were down at Lejeune. So. Uh, I had put in for an intel position to go back to Quantico. And if I had gotten that, but everything gone through, I would have stayed in. Uh, but I had a negative experience with a platoon sergeant over it. So I decided to get out. I came back home. Uh, ended up being a police officer here in New Hampshire for a while. Uh, good overall experience overall. Didn't see eye to eye with the chief working in a small town. So I actually went back to college, used the GI Bill, uh, got my degree in accounting. 
didn't really, wasn't able to find a job in accounting. It was right around the time, right around 2006, where they changed the laws where if you got a bachelor's degree in accounting, uh, you now had to have a master's degree to even take the CPA exam. So I was kind of like an in-between. I didn't have the experience, but I had the education. So I ended up uh, talking to a recruiter for the National Guard, and uh, I kind of missed the camaraderie anyway. So I ended up going back in. I actually interviewed to be a recruiter for the National Guard, and I hadn't even re-enlisted yet. And this was my interview with the NCOIC, the Master Sergeant. I showed up. I was still in my work clothes, and I had was working at a metal factory at the time in the paint department. So I had paint all over me. I show up. He asked me a few questions, and he said, okay, we're going for a ride. So he took me for a ride to the main mall in Portland. He said, we're going to walk around the mall, and I want you to go talk to five people, and I want to see how you interact with them. And I must have done a good job because he said, you're hired. I went to MAPS and re-enlisted, and that's what I ended up doing until I got pulled to go to Afghanistan, and that was in 2009. I was kind of voluntold that it was going to happen. I loved the job recruiting, one of the best jobs I'd ever done in the military. I was having all kinds of fun with it. I was actually a college recruiter, so I, didn't, I wasn't assigned an area, so I had to go find my recruits at the colleges. Uh, had a great experience with it, but... Uh, because I had the infantry MOS already and the infantry unit, uh, Bravo Company, the 3rd 172nd out of Brewer, was heading over for a combat toward Afghanistan. Uh, I ended up getting pulled because I had good marks and they wanted some leadership to be able to go over. So uh, they basically said, if you, you can refuse not to go, what was going to happen is when you want to re-enlist, we're just not going to let you re-enlist. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go. Uh, I've never been in a combat zone, never really did the job as an infantryman, so let's go for it. So my CO ended up pulling me out very quickly because I was, what, 36, 37 at the time? So I was much older than most of the other infantry folks, and it was a mountain unit too, so the PT standard was very high, a um, lot of great training, loved the experience, one of the best unit I, units I had been in in the military, uh, and they let people know that too. So. But the CO, he was a down-to-earth guy. He didn't care what your rank was. He cared who could get the job done. And he knew my background. So he immediately pulled me from uh, a fire team and made me in charge of the COICEL, which stands for Company Intelligence Support Team. So my official title was a political culture advisor. So what I ended up doing was reading the, of the Holy Quran before we went over started reading up the Pashtu culture because we knew we were going to be going to be right on the Paktia province there in Afghanistan, right on the border with Pakistan. Uh, I knew the area had a mix of Sunni and Shia. So obviously some conflicts going on there. And my main jobs over there were, I was the information officer, which means my job, if something happened in our operating area, my job was to make us look good. Make, make sure things were got smoothed over. And I had to do that quite a few times. Also, I was in charge of running a radio station over there. So a lot of folks knew me as the radio guy because we go out on foot patrol and I would be handing out radios they could use. So I had a program, a, basically a, a radio show for 16 hours a day. Uh, I had two Afghan DJs that helped out with it. 
But the main focus was I was the intel officer. So my job was every time we went into a village, my job was to talk to the elders and collect information. There were a lot of positives with that experience and there's some negatives with that experience, unfortunately. Um, not getting into a lot of details, but some elders were killed because they were seen talking to me and giving me information. It was an eight-year-old boy that was hung because he was seen giving me information and we acted on it. Um, but a lot of the positives were our AO overall was pretty safe. And I'm telling you, that's a lot of pressure to put on one person because what I do and say in that meeting can reflect back on the entire unit and whether or not those elders are going to allow those uh, Taliban and Chechnyans in there to get closer to our base. So a lot of great experiences in the military, and that's kind of the stuff I've been doing uh, ever since is to give back to all those veterans. Because a lot of people don't understand what veterans really go through when they are deployed, when they're in country. And there's different things that you can do there. And I really try to stand out with the folks that were combat arms because there's a lot of things that they struggle through. And that's why I have my own radio show uh, called Changing the Stigma, because a lot of veterans don't want to come forward, especially if they're struggling for mental health. And that's also why I belong with VFW, because there's a lot of like experiences there. But we really need to make sure a lot of these folks that were in the combat arms or supported the combat arms, that they feel comfortable to come forward to ask for help. That's what we really need. That's awesome, James. Thank you. The, what, what a what a uh, tremendous experience. And so, when you uh, came home from Afghanistan, uh, then uh, what what was next for you in in your military service? Well, when I came back from Afghanistan, what ended up happening was uh, because I was headed off to officer candidate school. Mm -hmm. They, they, they rescinded my recruiting job. And I'm like, well, I haven't gone yet. I'm, I'm scheduled to go in a few months. And they're like, nope, uh, this is for solely enlisted. So uh, what I ended up doing was shortly before I was leaving for OCS, I found out through the grapevine that as soon as I got commissioned as a lieutenant, I was going to be shipped back out with the MPs. And I'm like, I just got back. I'm going to be gone for you know three or four months and then i'm going to ship back out again no one educated me that if i'd already done a combat tour i could refuse uh, one within five years i was never educated on that so i ended up having a conversation with my kids uh, because i was just starting to reconnect with them again you know like dad we don't want you to go again so i decided you know what my contract ends in a few days i'm just not going to re-enlist uh, and i'm okay with that decision now uh, even though at the time I wanted to kind of rub it in my uh, father-in-law's face because he was a retired warrant officer from the Marine Corps. And I kind of, a little part of me wanted to be able to outrank him as a, as a butterball. So, but <laughs> absolute respect to all the warrant officers. They're, they're experts in their field. So they've earned it. Yeah, no, de no, definitely. That's, that's um, tremendous. I, I know a lot of uh, veterans that, that go through you know, family considerations with with regard to uh, whether staying in the service or departing, and and I know uh, for our audience, James, I know personally, and he's so involved in giving back. Um, 
from the work that he does in, in his day work with Harbor Care to his um, non nonprofit help. And and actually, if you could talk a little bit about that, I know you're also on the on the board of uh, Homeland Heroes. Yeah, I just joined the board a couple months ago. Uh, absolutely amazing uh, organization. I'm thankful that uh, you know I was allowed to be on the board. Uh, I'm actually participating right now. We're trying to come up with a scholarship to give back to those veterans that may not have education benefits, or maybe they've gone by the wayside, or even like the National Guard, a lot of those members kind of may not qualify for educational benefits. So I want to make sure anyone that is trying to transition from something, they want to be able to uh, give back to those folks. But they've got their hands in so many things and trying to help out so many veterans. Just in my day job, working as a case manager with uh, the homeless vets, Homeland Heroes has helped out almost all the vets that have moved out in permanent housing between furniture or gas cards or whatever they've helped them out with. And I get the stories back and it just puts a smile on my face, even when I wasn't even part of the organization, that there is an organization out there that veterans can turn to uh, for this assistance. And they have big smiles. It doesn't matter if it's used furniture or lightly used or whatever it is. They're just completely appreciative of the fact that they have that furniture and that it's going to help them be successful. And that's one less worry that they have to have. Um, so I'm excited about what's going to happen with Homeland Heroes going forward. Uh, I'm going to be participating in this uh, horse riding event uh, towards the end of May. My youngest daughter is going to go with me. So I'm going to spend the weekend out there with some other vets, riding some horses. Uh, and I'm excited with the other events that are going to be coming out. I always promote these events on my radio show um, and try to make sure that the vets that I work with, even the ones I don't work with, other veteran organizations that are aware of all this stuff. So more of these services get utilized and the organization can continue to grow. Yeah, and, and I know that, uh, you know, you give them back in so many other ways too. I mean, through your radio show, through, uh, um, we, we were talking earlier with, with Phil. I know you're annually a, a Swim with a Mission uh, volunteer out there on the, uh, out there on the boats. And and just uh, thank thank you on that and uh, for everything you do there, James. I know it's always above and beyond. No, I appreciate it. Uh, um, tell us a little bit about what what you're doing now too in your uh, in your day work now uh, in your post uh, military service. You're giving back to veterans at Harbor Care Veterans First. Yep. So I work at Buckingham Place. I'm a case manager with those uh, veterans that are in the transitional housing. So my main focus is to make sure they're successful when they move out into permanent housing. So that could be uh, obviously finding housing that's affordable, that is helping them budget or be able to do their finances so they're successful, get benefits in place they may or may not know they qualify for, which includes you know VA compensation disability, it could be through social security, maybe food stamps. It's helping them find employment and utilizing those other services within the organization and outside, including the SSVF, Supportive Services, Veterans and Families for Housing, uh, HVRP, which is the Employment for Veterans, making sure medically they're okay, get them connected to a, the clinic that we have or the VA or whatever type of thing they wanna be connected to. This is all 
veteran centered too. It's we sit down and come up with a plan together. And my job is trying to keep them on track to make sure when they do move out, they are going to be successful. And I always joke with them, like in a good way, I don't want to ever see you again when you move out. That way I know you're successful uh, and everything we did worked out for you. Uh, we check about mental health. We also work with them on uh, substance use issues, if there's any there. Um, and currently, I'm actually going through Fordham University. Uh, this is another way I'm trying to give back is um, just a, in about two weeks, I finished my first year working on my master's in social work. So I'll have two more semesters left. And then I plan on getting licensed as a licensed social worker so I can do therapy with veterans. But the key is I want to make sure I can do the therapy and counseling and non-traditional hours. So what happens is the vet centers, the VA, they only work Monday through Friday, basically eight to four. And there's too many vets that can't get the services because they can't use the reason that I got to go see a mental health person for two hours once a week or whatever it is. And some of them actually own their businesses. So they can't just leave work to go to counseling. So what we need is we need people to come forward and work with these veterans early morning hours, late at night maybe holidays, weekends. And that's my intention is to offer those hours up for those that are in need so they continue to be successful because too many of the people I deployed with have spiled out um, of their lives because of certain things and not getting services. And we need to make sure they stay successful and they're more willing to talk to somebody that can talk the same language than versus somebody that unfortunately may have just... Uh, gotten the experience to the books and they're still learning. Uh, and I hear that a lot from a lot of vets because they usually ask, Hey, are you a veteran, especially when I go to the VA. And a lot of times the people they work with are not veterans. So it takes a little bit back from that. So. James, thank you. Uh, you know, for your commitment to all of that. I mean, in addition to all the service, you know, that you're given to our country to now be in service in this way is really it's an amazing thing, and it's it's a great life that you're leading here. It's, it's helping a lot of people. Uh, you know, I want to just try to take a step back because you said so many things there. Yep. You know, let's just try to unpack this a little bit. And you know, through my efforts with some of the mission, right, we're, we're constantly trying to strengthen our veteran community, right? And there's so many different areas of need and so forth. But let's just take a step back and you know, what, what is your experience with, with our local veterans and where, you know, not where, how do they find services? How do our veterans who feel like, okay, I need help with something, how do they find services? What, what are you seeing there? So a lot of them are not sure where to go. So I, I do a lot of outreach for the homeless folks, or especially around Nashua. We walk around the railroad tracks. We try to find encampments, talk to folks. Um, Obviously, the first place that a lot of people try to go to is the VA. Sometimes they have good experiences. Sometimes they have bad experiences. Um, but there really is no central place to actually find this. Things are getting better in New Hampshire because now I can tell folks uh, a resource is to call 211. But sometimes a lot of those resources for the veterans don't know that they can be listed as a resource through 211. So we definitely have to work on a way for all of that to get together somewhere. Uh, but I tell people, call the VA, uh, call the VFW, call the DAV, call the American Legion. All those different places can start pointing you in the right direction. 
And if they don't have an answer, they all work well together to try to find the answer. But now you have places like Homeland Heroes. You have places like um, that do recreational therapy, like um, uh, so. Uh, what is it? Uh, I'm trying to think what it is. There's just all kinds of other things out there yeah. that we need to find a local place that you can kind of click on. And like, these are the veteran resources. Yep. Uh, I yep. think Nashville does a continuum of care. So you can go on the city website and they right. you can pull up some stuff. Um, that's I pretty mean, much uh, how I see it. Thank you, James, for that. That's a good summary. I mean, that's my frustration too. You know, in, in we've some of the mission is, you know, has only been around for six years. This is year six for us. And, uh, we have sought out and tried to support each veteran service organization in New Hampshire, you know, some more than others, depending on what they're doing and, and you know, what they're capable of. And so, you know, we, we found just under 40, you know, veteran service organizations, mostly working in silos. And I'm very frustrated that there isn't just one place for a veteran to go, whether it's on the internet or somewhere else to figure all this out. Um, you know, I'm not sure where's the best place. I've been trying to push the state of New Hampshire to do it. And so we put, we have the list of all the veteran service organizations and what they do on our website. It took us 30 minutes to put that up, right? And we have all of them right. up there. Um, but we don't think that Swim with the Mission is the right place for that, right? We just did it just to show everybody like, this is just not that hard. Right. You know, we know right. what they are and what they're doing. So I think that's a continuing problem. Uh, we're bringing all the veteran service organizations together now annually. We did it last year. We're going to do it again uh, in May of this year, which by the time this podcast comes out, it would have happened already. Um, and that's one of the problems uh, we're going to tackle uh, you know, the other thing I've heard a lot, James, is about, and you're right in the middle of all this, is the need for affordable housing for veterans, right? Right. And so we're working on that in, in building a campus in Franklin, New Hampshire, which will have affordable housing, but also space for all of the veteran service organizations, as well as the VA and the state to be, so that, um, you know, when we try to answer this question where services, at least folks will know they're available in Franklin you know, that everybody's there. So this is a, this is a continuing fight, you know, that we have to win. Um, but, but let me, let me switch gears with you, James, and just talk about the mental health piece of, of things, you know, um, you know, tell, tell me a little bit about what your sense is. I, I know, you know, a lot about this, but you know, what are you seeing in the veteran population in terms of PTS, PTSD, traumatic brain injuries give us a sense of what's what's going on out there so what i'm seeing is a lot of the folks have so i see it both ways so i see that um a lot of folks assume that veterans have ptsd or suffer from it just because they're a veteran so there's a stigma attached to it because of the media and uh, movies and things like that so that actually affects the people that actually do suffer from it because now they don't want to come forward because there's a lot, a lot of that negative stigma to it. So let me give you an example. Shortly after I got back from Afghanistan and I knew I wasn't going to be a recruiter and uh, I got out of the army, I went to 117 interviews. I have three college degrees and I could not get hired anywhere. 
most of the people that I talked to, when you were actually face to face with them in an interview, would flat out tell me they thought it was too soon being back and they thought I would snap. Now, there's no defense for that. They can, they can uh, discriminate against you for being a veteran. Now, if I actually disclosed if I had PTSD or not, then that becomes a disability issue. So I ended up taking a job, working at a car dealership uh, till I could find something. Even when I was at the car dealership, I was treated completely different from everybody else. And I actually asked one of the managers one time, what's going on here? Other people are being told things, but nobody's saying anything to me. Well, we know your background, so uh, you can do whatever you want. How do you think that made me feel? So how do you think a lot of these veterans are that are really suffering hard from the things they saw, you know, picking up body parts, uh, being shot at, having close calls, getting injured, seeing their friends die. Uh, and it's gotten worse now that we're not in Afghanistan. A lot of those veterans are like, what were we there for? Why did Joe and John get killed just right. to just to give it back? So these are the things that I've been talking with these veterans that they don't want to come forward. Plus, veterans themselves are their own worst enemy because what happens? Let's say you were in the military and you got hurt during a PT run. Who wants to go to sick hall? Right. Because then you look upon as weak. So you have that mentality, men and women. Hey, I was in the military. I should just move on. I should just deal with it and keep going. So that's what their mentality is. So they still don't come forward. So that's why I'm looking for other veterans to come forward, whether as like my brother just got hired with the VA as a peer support specialist. So he's allowed to share like experiences from his time in the Marine Corps. And uh, he gets a lot more out of the veterans than somebody that's a non-veteran. And then the VA is trying to hire more of those folks. But that's why I'm looking for more veterans to come forward that are kind of in a good place, but they can identify or empathize a lot more with other veterans to get them to come forward and feel more comfortable. Like even at Buckingham Place, we've been running some groups. So I make sure I sit in with the clinician. So when things come up, I can speak the language that those veterans can speak and I can kind of sift through some of the stuff for her and it makes a better connection. Instead of having them spending time explaining things, I can summarize it real quick for them uh, and they feel like they've been heard and listened to. And that's really important because even on my radio show in the intro, it has nothing to do with me. The intro says it takes 10 years for the average person to come forward to ask for help with mental health. And we're averaging 22 deaths a day by suicide with veterans. We've got to, we've got to get these guys and women to come forward, whether it's uh, sexual trauma, combat trauma, whatever they dealt with, you got to get them to come forward and ask for that help. Yeah, no, that's right. That's very well said. And I, you know, COVID didn't help, right? You know, a lot of folks, whether it's the VA or veteran service organizations had to cut back on services. Right. You know, increased anxiety, you know, isolation, you know, none of these things are good for anyone in the population that is struggling a little bit, right? I understand at one point during COVID, the suicide rate amongst veterans had doubled to 44 a day. Right. Um, which is just awful. I mean, you're talking a population that's used to isolating. Now they're being told to isolate. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's just not good. So um, we talked a little bit about equine immersion programs, uh, art therapy. 
you know, what's your sense of, you know, what actually does work? What does help? You know, th these kinds of programs you talk about, you're going to go and spend some time with your daughter, you know, with some horses. Like, what's your sense of what does help our veterans out there? So let me give you an example. So I thought of that organization, Northeast Passage out of UNH. They're huge yes. on recreational therapy. Yep. I've gone to a lot of events for them. I actually got into cycling because of them. I went to an event with them. They treated me well. Uh, I went to a fishing event uh, for striped bass recently with them. Just the picture being out there in the river in Portsmouth doing striped fishing with 12 other veterans. And some of them uh, had some physical issues. So they had equipment to get them out there in the river, in the mud, so they could do the fly fishing. Plus you had some bald eagles flying overhead. Great. Everyone couldn't stop talking about the event, even though some people didn't catch any fish. Just being out there was amazing. I've gone on fishing, other fishing trips. Um, so I'm huge about the recreational therapy. And I'm telling you, every time I participate in it and I see other veterans participate in it, there's a huge smile at the end of it. They can't not, not smile. Um, so being out there, being able to talk to other veterans, just getting that fresh air is amazing. That's why my brother, he's into cycling. He, he lives in Jamaica Plains. He, he bikes almost the same I do to the VA in Bedford and back every day because he does it because it's kind of a coping skill. It's a way for him to deal with stuff and let everything out by burning off that energy. So, I mean, all kinds of things you can do out there. I encourage all the time for people to get out there and participate. Maybe you're going to find something that you uh, never thought you would like. I never thought I would be into swimming. But because of COVID, I couldn't go to the gym to lift weights anymore. Plus, I'm getting older. I don't need to be lifting all that weight anymore. So let's find an alternative. Um, and I liked it. I played tennis for the first time. I actually liked it. Before, I always played football and, you know, didn't even think about tennis. So there's right. all those alternatives. And I still have not met a veteran yet that hasn't participated in one of these events, whether it be pickleball, bowling, um, I just went, I did an event with uh, Rifle the Rods doing fly fishing down on the Deerfield River in Mass. Everyone could not stop talking about it. And you get that connection. By going on that trip, I end up finding out that there's a couple guys that own fishing boats that are retired. And one day a week, they take veterans out for free to go fishing in the ocean. Yeah, I, I you just don't know the connections you'll get. I got to tell you, James, I couldn't agree with you more on, on, uh, and, and some of these um, outdoor activities. I mean, the uh, just the interest in in getting out fishing with the veterans, the uh, equestrian activities. And I know up at uh, Boulder Point that uh, serves veterans who had experienced homelessness. Um, the you know the equestrian outings are are very popular. Fishing. Um, kayaking and and just getting outdoors. Veterans of all ages. I uh, just uh, last um, year. Now we're getting into the good weather, but uh, but we you know took took the vets out to Cannon Mountain up the Gondola. Nice. And yeah. and it's just uh, you know, you know so so good for uh, physical and mental health. No, absolutely. I didn't think I would ever enjoy horseback riding, but uh, I tried it out a couple months ago. And now every Monday evening after work, after I run a group of veterans, I go horseback riding. 
So you never know, Dave, you might see me pull into 77 with a horse one day. <laughs> and I know, I know, I know Phil inspires us all to swim. <laughs> right. Swimming's <laughs> so. good for you. Oh, it is. I feel great when I get done swimming. So, yes, no, it, it's a good one. I, I talked to the VA about trying to put a little swim program together, bring veterans from the VA to the YMCAs, you know, and yep. uh, train for swim with a mission. It's something I should go back and revisit, you know, even if it's one veteran at a time or three at a time. Just get them part of it's just getting in that regular routine of swimming and then feeling like you're with, you know, with a team, you know, doing it, doing it with some teammates, which is always good. Right. And maybe the VA can uh, sponsor some memberships to the Y2 or something. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that, that would be really good. I, I got one more question for you on this topic, James. So, you know, what are you seeing? You know, in these programs, like Northeast Passage is a phenomenal group. We've supported them from some of the mission. We continue to, we believe in their mission. They're doing a great job. But, but you know, if you get a veteran to finally like, you know, say, okay, you know, I'm going to leave my house. Maybe I've got some stuff to deal with. I'm going to go to one of these programs and they go and they realize, wow, you know, I've got some issues. I need to deal with it. Are you seeing organizations, I'm not picking on Northeast Passage. It's the same for everybody, uh, you know, is there a handoff? Like if, if a veteran has a breakthrough moment and now wants to go look for help, do you see a handoff to another organization or is it just like, okay, you know, Sunday night comes or back home again on Monday? Uh, I'm not sure with Northeast Passage. Um, so I will tell you my first experience with them was I was kind of in a low spot. I think it was like around 2014, 2015. So they actually ended up helping me out um, uh, helped me, they helped me get a fishing license and they actually took me out fishing once. So I got back into it again and really liked it. I wouldn't say that they would have handed me off to anybody per se. Uh, so I think it's just educating those places out there that if they do do it, maybe they have their own policies and some of these organizations, I know sure. within Harbor care that, uh, we're pretty well integrated. So if you're in one program, most of the staff are aware of the other programs can help support them. Like if I'm, I know that if I'm working with somebody and people in our program, that we know that if somebody's suffering from mental health, that's not our primary role. So we know to put them a referral and where to make it to. There's other places, you know, like the mental health centers, they, they're aware of what to do. Yeah, I, I think we just need to get out there and get that educated. And that's another thing that I do. I'm actually a mental health first aid instructor for teens, adults, um, and youth. I've been doing trainings around the state through the Department of Ed, the Bureau of Student Wellness for the youth and teen and the adult. And I'm also signed off for the veteran course too, to go train veterans. It's basically teaching the general public. It's kind of like CPR, but for, 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 uh, for mental health. So there's like steps for you to go through and to be aware, just learn signs and symptoms. And it teaches you how to find those resources to do that. So maybe it's doing something like that with some of these organizations all at once, get them trained on signs and symptoms. I mean, I just did it at the church at St. Patrick's Church in Nashua because they do like a warming center and they get a lot of veterans and folks with mental health that come in. And they came to me and asked if there was any trainings. And I, I said, yeah. So I volunteered to do the training for them so they can identify it. Now they know who to call and what the resources are 
and what to look for. So maybe that's something we do with these veteran organizations. I think I talked to Julie uh, about it before about maybe putting on a training event at Homeland Heroes or doing an event where we can train some of the public on to recognize this, especially in veterans, because veterans are very good at trying to hide things and keep it in. It's a great idea. I love it. I love it. We should talk some more about that offline. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. You got a really good handle on this. It's great to get your insight uh, on it. And, and it's been my experience as well that veterans want to talk to other veterans, right? Marines want to talk to Marines and Air Force wants to talk to Air Force. And so, you know. Well, it's always, the, it's always nice to pick on the different branches together too, so. <laughs> yeah, and you got, you, you've got got uh, Army and the Marine Corps, so you got at least two of them covered. Yeah, and that usually hits home sometimes for some of the Army folks, because obviously there's more Army than uh, Marines, but I usually joke with folks that the Army is where the Marines go to retire, so. It's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Every branch has their job. Every MOS has their reason for it. We yep. can't all do the same job. We can't all be in the same branch. So we, we just, I've never seen veterans get together. You can jab each other about what branch or job, but at the end of the day, you're still a veteran. So. Right. Yes. No, that's exactly right. One team, one fight. So yeah. that's, no, that's good stuff. So really this, this is, I can't believe how quickly this uh, time went by uh, Dave. And I, I've been asking all the questions the last uh, few minutes here. I don't know if you wanted to jump in. No, James, honestly, I just can't uh, thank you enough for, for joining um, Phil and I on Homeland Hero Salutes. And and uh, I've known James now. I've been honored to know him for over a year uh, uh, professionally and know about all the, um, you know, the, the dedication that he gives uh, of himself to to our, our veterans, not only through his service, but what he does uh each each and every every day in his uh, spare time to uh, uh, his work and and James just really wanted to, to thank you uh, so much for being on on Homeland uh, Hero Salute with uh, with Phil and I and also I'm sure that uh, you know Phil would be a great guest on your show. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are more than welcome to come on anytime. It's uh, Friday from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. on WSMN. You can listen in anytime at WSMN.live. There's a lot of good shows on there, but uh, I try to have as many guests. You can speak whatever you want. Uh, and we really try to drive home that we need to change that stigma, not just for veterans, but anyone suffering from a mental health issue uh, so they can be another successful part of the community. So. Well, James, James, thanks so much. Thanks for, so much for all you do, and thanks for joining us. No, thank you, and I appreciate the offer. It was a great time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, James. This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need and Dairy Cam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.
The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services, the Holman Harris Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.